What difference does Christmas make? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be addressing a few questions about Christmas. They might improve your Christmas. They might make you wonder more about Christmas. You might say, I've never thought of these questions about Christmas before. However, these will be the questions that we'll be looking at. And the question today is, what difference does Christmas make? How about you? But first thing I think about are the physical differences, right? The decorations that go up, all of the music that gets played, you know, the money that comes out of my bank account, right? Okay, all of those different things are physical differences that happen during the Christmas time. But, and I just have to know, all right, because, and no judgment here, okay? So everybody, please participate, even you online, we need to hear you in the chat, okay? Who here set up their Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving? Raise your hand and raise it proud, okay? Don't, don't be like, oh, I did it, I'm ashamed, okay? All right, awesome. Who here started playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving, okay? All right, awesome. About the same people, about the same people. Who here, you find it to be utterly repulsive to play Christmas music or set up decorations before Thanksgiving? Okay, all right, okay, all right. Like I said, let's not start a, a, a fight out in the parking lot after this, okay? This side is decorations, this side's no deck. Okay, let's not do that. But anyway, all right, there are physical differences that happen around Christmas time, right? Next week when you come in here, there are going to be Christmas decorations everywhere. You're going to see all of the things that, that come up to be different and to kind of give you this awe and this wonder around you. Not only that, but Christmas also brings about some mental differences, Right? There are studies out there that prove that people are more generous during the Christmas time than any other time, all right? Whether it be because of Thanksgiving coming up or or Thanksgiving happening first and then Christmas coming up after that, people are more generous around the Christmas time than any other time of the year. So there is evidence to show there is a generosity mental state that people have. Not only that, but you might have a mental state of a to-do list. You know, you are the type of person that you're like, we got to get to the Christmas Eve service. We got to make sure the, you know, we get all the presents bought. We got to make sure the dog gets fed. Okay. We got to make sure all these different things. Can't forget the dogs. Okay. But we got to make sure we have all of these things done. And it's almost like you can't even take a minute to pause because you're trying to get everything done that needs to happen for Christmas. And for some of you, some of you, there could be the, the, the mental state of the childlike wonder, right? You look around, you see the lights, you see everything that's going on around you, you see the decorations coming up and all those different things. That, that's where I'm at mentally during Christmas time, all right? I am the person that's like, I remember when I was a kid running down the steps, seeing the Christmas tree, okay? The first night we put up the Christmas lights in our house, my wife Hannah, she was like, hey, you going to turn the Christmas lights off? I was like, nope, they're staying on. She's like, well, the electric bell, I don't care, okay? I leave them on, all right? Give them their time. They're not going to be up that long, okay? But I am just that type of person that I revert back to this sense of childlike wonder when it comes to Christmas time. I remember my dad smacking my hand away as I reached for the Christmas presents before he had his morning coffee and our breakfast time, okay? All right. I was the kid, and my brother was actually worse. I was the kid that stayed up all night playing Monopoly, you know? Like, I gotta, you gotta be ready for this. All right. My brother, one time, I forget how old he was. He's maybe, 11 or 12, he played an entire game of Risk the night before, just himself, okay? Like, he was all four of them, all right? He guaranteed he would be the one who would rule the world, all right? 
Now I think about it, that's the way to play, right? Okay. But no, he would have this wonder, and I, and I have this childlike wonder. That's, my, that's where my mental state goes. But not only does our mental state take a difference, but our, our emotions change. We have a difference in our emotions. Whether it's you're excited because Christmas is coming, or you're stressed out because you don't know if you can get everything done, or you're joyous because all the lights are around, or maybe you're just feeling a little depressed because things have happened in Christmas past that you're just not too thankful for, and, and they are a bad memory that you don't want to go back to, or whatever the reason might be, there is, a, there is an emotional change that goes on around Christmas time. But today, I'm not going to preach to you about the physical change, or the mental change, or the emotional change. I want to preach to you today about what difference does Christmas make spiritually? What difference does Christmas make in our spiritual Lives. How does it change us? How does it bring about things in our hearts, in our, in our understanding, in our relationship with God? What does it bring about in us? And I think the most important person to look to when we think about what difference does Christmas make spiritually is we look to the one who was the first one to ever encounter Christmas, ever to encounter this idea that, that Jesus would come to this earth, the Messiah, the Savior, would come to this earth. And that's Mary herself. What was her spiritual reaction? What was the spiritual difference that Mary had when it was confirmed to her that, yes, you will be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior. You will deliver him, carry him into this world, and deliver him. And the most important place to look for that, I think, is in the gospel account of Luke. All right, now Luke, great great writer, okay? He had a goal. He stated at the beginning, he said, my goal is to deliver an accurate account for Theophilus. Theophilus was a buddy, a friend, who knows, maybe it was somebody who was in charge of him, whatever it was. But he wanted to deliver this accurate account for Theophilus. And so he goes out and finds all of the different people who were in these events. He gets eyewitness accounts, figures all these things out. I've always kind of related him to the guy who wrote Case for Christ a little bit. He kind of went on his journey to find all these things out. If you've read that book, you know. If not, it's a great book. I'd encourage you to go pick it up. But he is kind of like that guy who goes out to find all of these eyewitness accounts and compile them together in a way so that this man, Theophilus, would be able to believe in Jesus. And what we see is that he doesn't start with anything other than where God himself started speaking again. You see, there was a silent period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a silent period of about uh, three or 400 to 500 years. All right? It could be a little give or take on that. But hundreds of years, there was a silent period where, where God didn't have prophets. He wasn't speaking to people regularly or anything like that. And people were kind of wondering, like, where is God? What, what is going on? Why have we not heard from him. Well, there was a priest by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah went to go do his priestly duties, as he normally does. He spends a week at the temple, does his priestly duties, comes back home. And while he's at the temple at that time, he goes and he gets visited. And he's told that his wife, who is somewhere between the age of 60 to 80 years old, they've never had children, she will have a son. And that son will be, and they don't know this yet, but it will be John the Baptist, the son who was prophesied to come before the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Zechariah doesn't, doesn't really believe him at first, and he gets muted. He, he's not able to talk for not, for not believing at first. But by the time he comes back, just a little bit of time later, Elizabeth does indeed become pregnant with a son. 
And Elizabeth does what she normally does with, with everybody back then. She went off for months by herself and, and kind of took care of things and was kind of away at that time because that's what they normally did. And close to after she came back, about in her third trimester is what it, is what it says, something happens to Mary, where Mary gets visited by the angel. And Mary, it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but Mary accepts the news, all right? It doesn't say that she, you know, believed it with all her heart or anything like that, but she accepts the news, all right? I kind of look at it as like a, she said, okay, I'm, I'm going to work with this. I'm going to, I'm not denying it. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying, but I'm, I'm going to work with this. And so what does she do? She goes and visits Elizabeth. And at her visit with Elizabeth, she receives the confirmation that she needs in order to know that, yes, indeed, she will, in fact, carry and deliver the Messiah, the one who was prophesied for years and years and years. She would, in fact, carry and deliver him. And she experiences three different confirmations from this visit with Elizabeth. She visits Elizabeth, and in this visit with her, she experiences three different confirmations. Number one, the personal confirmation. Mary witnessed firsthand that Elizabeth was, in fact, six months pregnant. She was, in fact, at that time, entering into her third trimester, which was prophesied that a son would come before the Messiah at that time. And so she had that personal confirmation that, yes, Elizabeth does have this. She was told, or Zechariah was told that she would have a kid, and that was her first confirmation. The second confirmation was the physical confirmation that when she mentioned Jesus, when she mentioned the Messiah, the Savior, John the Baptist leapt, leaped in Elizabeth's womb. There was a physical confirmation there that, yes, indeed, he leapt, he leaped when he heard the name of Jesus. And finally, the prophetic confirmation. The prophetic confirmation that God filled Elizabeth with his Holy Spirit as she spoke the word of God. And remember in the verses of 42 to 45. We have those confirmations and immediately after, immediately after Mary receives those confirmations, she has no doubt and we can discover what the difference of Christmas made in her spiritually. Let's read in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 45. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This is the last part here. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so we read that and we say, well, what, what difference did Jesus' confirmation bring? And the truth is that Jesus' confirmation brought a transformation. His confirmation brought a transformation. Because what difference did Christmas make to Mary spiritually worship? Worship was the difference. When Mary heard and confirmed the news of Jesus, that yes, indeed, she would carry and deliver the Messiah, the Son of God, that she worshipped him. 
And it's an example of how our communication back to God should be when we have confirmed the news of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, that we worship him for sending his son. And in this moment, we see that Mary is an example of worship. We read these, these nine verses and we read an example of Mary's worship. But what I want to be clear about before we get into that is that Mary is the example of worship. She is not the one to be worshipped. This can sometimes get confused in Christian circles that, oh, Mary did all these things and so she should in fact be worshipped. There was even a part in scripture where, where somebody started worshipping Mary in front of Jesus for carrying him and he said, she is just as blessed as those who have heard about me. That she is to be blessed as we are blessed because she had confirmed the name of Jesus that she would carry and deliver him. Look at what it says in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is Mary. For behold, from now on, all generations will, will call me blessed. And what's important here is that last letter there on the end. Not that they would call her the blesser. She is not the one delivering the blessings, but she is the one who is blessed. Through this, she has been blessed. And so she does not deserve our praise. She does not deserve our worship. She does not deserve any of that. What she does deserve is the recognition that she was an example of worship that we should follow, but not that she is the one who blesses us in any way, shape, or form. She is not the one who saves us. She's not the one who did any of that, but she is, in fact, just an example, not the blesser. She is the blessed. And so going on from there, we can see three different examples of Mary's worship. And, I, and I've done this in kind of a way, so it's easy to remember. They're all three H's, okay? So hopefully you can remember that. If not, I don't know what else to do for you, okay? Number one, honest worship, all right? We be honest in our worship to God, to others, all right? And this isn't just Sunday morning worship. This is also worship throughout our everyday lives. When we speak to people who may, may have heard the name of Jesus or may have not heard the name of Jesus, that we would be honest with the truth of who God is. We would not try to distort the truth of who Jesus is. We would not try to fit that into somebody else's box so it works for them or, or anything like that. But we would be honest about the truth of who Jesus is because the reality is, is that Jesus is exactly who everybody needs. There is no difference that he needs to make for anybody because he is exactly who everybody needs. You see, Mary chose to worship God with truth. And we might not see it exactly, but, but let's reread verses, uh, verses 49 through 55. Verses 49 through 55. Let's reread this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, we don't see exactly in between the lines there, all right? And I would encourage you not to read the Bible in between the lines, but to read the Bible in such a way where it connects with the Old Testament. Because what Mary is doing here is she is saying many of the exact same things. She is uttering the same words of prayers in the Old Testament. The one that she utters the most is the prayer of Hannah. After Hannah discovers that she will, in fact, 
bear a child in 1 Samuel, that she will have a child after being barren, after not having a child. She will, in fact, have a child. She is praying many of the same words that Hannah herself prayed. And so what we know is that Mary was not just a random girl. She knew her scriptures. She knew the scriptures of the Old Testament and all those different things. She knew exactly what she was saying. She was not going off the cuff. Oh, these are the thoughts of who I think God is. These are the thoughts of, of, of why I might worship God. I think because these are true. No, she knew her scripture and she knew the truth of who God is. And she uttered those truths to God in praise and honor and worship to him. And it becomes a problem today. And I'm not saying it's a problem here, but it's a problem today that we do not always worship God honestly. We don't always dig into what is the exact truth here. And I'm not saying every single prayer you pray has to be a psalm from the Bible or anything like that. But you, we do need to make sure that when we're praying, when we're giving worship to God, that we are being honest and truthful about who he is. Look at what Vadi Botchman says. He's a pastor. He's an author. He's an educator. He's a theologian. I have great respect for Vadi. Uh, I would encourage you to read any of his work. If you ever uh, find a book that he has written and it seems interesting to you, he, he's great. But he says this. He says, the modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Filled with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well well. I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard to love somebody if you don't truthfully know them very well. And so what happens sometimes in today's culture is we get mixed up in this idea of who Jesus is instead of going straight to scripture and discovering who he is. And a lot of times this happens when our only reliance on knowing Jesus comes from one day a week. When our only reliance to knowing who Jesus is and what he's done comes from listening to a sermon once on Sunday morning. And that can be difficult. If that is the only way we're filling our minds with who Jesus is and knowing the truth of who he is, we will naturally, naturally not become completely cognizant of who Jesus truly is. We'll make up ideas, we'll make up things in our mind that maybe we're not even cognizant that we're doing those things. But when we go to scripture, we know that is the complete truth of who Jesus is, and we can rely on that truth. In John chapter 4 verse 24, it says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. There are so many verses in the Bible about false teachers. They're not normally the ones we put up on the screen because they're not, you know, the most encouraging verses in the world, but there are so many verses in the New Testament, about false teachers, those who are going out trying to teach the wrong thing, trying to tell others whether they're trying to do it for financial gain or popularity or whatever it is, they're trying to teach you the wrong thing. And that's why it's important that we learn from, from people that we trust, people that we know, and people who have a fruitful lifestyle in addition to those things. Maybe we don't listen to every single thing somebody says, but we can pay attention to their lifestyle. Do they live a fruitful lifestyle to where they are living out the fruit of the Spirit in everything that they do? I would say those people who live out that lifestyle are probably your people that are your best bet to learn from. And obviously people make mistakes. We have to have grace. But those are the type of people that, who repent show they want to live that fruitful lifestyle. They want to do those things. And so what we discover is that what we worship has to be true. We have to be truthful about 
our worship. Not what we worship because we know Jesus is true, but what we're worshiping about Jesus. Making sure that when we worship Jesus, it's not thoughts in our minds that we've conjured up and think, oh, this might be right. But everything that we worship about Jesus is backed up by Scripture, backed up in the truth. That's something I I love to talk about with Dan sometimes. I don't know if you guys know exactly how much work he does to make sure that every song that you guys are singing here on Sunday morning has truth in it. There are many songs out there, and I won't name them exactly because we don't have enough time, but there are many songs out there that worship ourselves more than worshiping God. And that is not the worship that we want to be singing. Those are not the songs, the hymns, and things like that. Those are not the things we want to be singing. We want to sing songs of worship that glorify and give honor to God and not glorify and give honor to us. And we'll visit that a little bit later when we get to our third H. But our second H is heightening worship. To heighten our worship on the one who deserves it the most. In chapter, or in uh, verse 46, it says this. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now this word magnifies, when you magnify something, you basically have two options when you're magnifying it, okay? Say you have a telescope, and you have this big, huge picture, all right? And you have all these planets that you can look at, all these stars. You can either magnify onto one planet or star or whatever it is, and, and that's the one you focus in on, right? And so you can make a smaller image bigger, okay? Or you can have one large image and focus in on a part of that image, And bring that to focus. Instead of making an object bigger, you're focusing in on a part of a picture. And what's important for us to do is that when we magnify, as as Mary says here, my soul magnifies the Lord. We are exalting, we are focusing on Jesus, not just in our worship here on Sunday morning, but in our daily lives as well. That every single portion of our life encompasses an aspect of worship to God. Whether it be sports, whether it be work, whether it be relationships, whether it be working out at the YMCA, whatever it is, that every single aspect of our lives has a focus on worshiping God. You see, worship happens when we focus on God all the time and not when we focus on God on our own time. Sometimes that's, that's the temptation, to worship when it's convenient for us, not all the time. When I was in high school, I used to think, well, if I say a prayer before the, the baseball game, I'll play better. Our team will win the game. I used to think that. I thought, oh, if I should say a prayer. And it worked for a couple games. For a couple games, I didn't strike out. I made good plays. I started the game, and I thought to myself, hey, this is working pretty well, right? And then slowly, you know, I reverted back to regular baseball John, which was not very good. And I started to get to that point where I was striking out more, I was dropping fly balls in the outfield, okay, I was, not, I was not fielding grounders very well, and I thought to myself, well, maybe I should pray more. I'm not praying enough. If I would just say a prayer before every at-bat, maybe that would work. And so I got to this point where I was just, you know, the only time I was really praying was on Sunday mornings and before my at-bats in baseball, and I thought, well, that's what I should do. But what I failed to realize was that I needed to worship God all the time and not just on my own time. Now, I will let you know, I never really got all that much better at baseball, so that's why I never turned out to be anything. However, it's a good example to know that 
we should be worshiping God all the time, not just here on Sunday mornings, not just when we feel like it, but there will be struggles in life when it's still important to turn to God to give him the worship and the glory that he deserves. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not just to encourage and be with one another and to meet together on Sunday mornings, but all the time to be there encouraging one another as the day draws near, as the days go, and as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. As we live our lives, not just on Sunday mornings when we meet together, but all the time encouraging one another. And by encouraging one another, we are offering worship to God. By, offering, by, by encouraging one another, by being together, by living in community, we are offering worship to God. You know, when I was on camp teams, and if you don't know what camp teams is, it's, it's a group of students from Christian college that goes out to different Christian camps throughout the summer. And you're basically like camp counselors for a week. All right, super fun, super awesome. Okay, I always loved Christian camp growing up. Uh, I know I know we don't do that a ton here. We do a lot of CIY and things like that, and that's great. But for me, I was a Christian camp kid. I loved going to Christian camp, all right? You know, uh, volleyball and uh, what's the tetherball, okay? All right, another thing I wasn't great at, but I still played it, okay? Um, but I remember doing all those things. And so when I got this opportunity to go and be on camp teams, I joined this team. It was a four-person team. And I tell you, the first year I did it, we had the best summer ever. I got along with that team so well. My best friend, was, or one of my best friends was on that team with me. Two girls, I hadn't met them, but they turned into close, dear friends as well. And we just had a ball of a summer. We saw people getting baptized all summer long. We had great experiences meeting other camp teamers. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing summer. And so when that summer came over, I said, you know what? I want to do this again. I had so much fun. I learned so much. It was so awesome. I want to do this again. And so I did camp teams again the next year. And I can tell you for a fact, the next year was not nearly as good as the first year. I was on this team with two people that were kind of younger, uh, sophomores, and they weren't as experienced with ministry, and they were two people that, uh, as the summer went, they kind of struggled with their faith a little bit, so it became really, really difficult. And another person that was on my team, she was on my team the first year, but the second year, her parents were going through a, a separation, a split up, and it was just very, very daunting on her uh, emotionally, mentally, all of those different things. And so, as we went throughout the summer, my leader of camp teams, he knew I was going to struggle a little bit because this team was not as strong as my first team. Didn't mean they weren't good. They just weren't as strong as a team as my first team. And so he pulled me aside one day, one of the last days of training. He said, I want you in the tough times when things are getting difficult, I want you to say, no matter what, Jesus. I want you to pray that prayer. I want you to keep that in your mind. Even when the things get difficult, even when stuff is happening, you're not sure what to do. Keep it in your mind, no matter what, Jesus. And pray that daily, he told me. And I did that. It was a good thing I did that too, because our first week, our van breaks down on the way to camp. And so we're stuck on the side of the road, about an hour and a half away from our camp. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't have a place to sleep that night. We don't have very good cell phone reception. So we're trying to figure out what to do. We thought we were going to have to sleep in the van that night. Thankfully, we were finally able to get enough reception that somebody was able to come and get us. And the van was able to be fixed the next day. But I remember sitting there in that van, sitting in the front seat, 
While everybody else was, you know, upset and they didn't know what to do and they were all trying to get on their phones, I just sat there, closed my eyes, and I said, no matter what, Jesus. And I let that peace roll over my heart to to be in my life, that no matter what happens in the situation, Jesus is going to come through. So that situation worked out, but the, the next camp, our second camp that year, or that, that uh, summer, we got a call during the time that uh, the girl who was on my camp team before, kind of the strongest member of my team who I relied on a lot, uh, her grandfather passed away during the middle of camp. And so she had to leave, and she was not able to be with us the rest of that week or the next week. And I remember really, really struggling because I had these two other people on my team, great people, but they were struggling more than I was, and they weren't really people I could lean on. And so when I was struggling, I didn't really have anybody to lean on in my life. I had people that I could text and talk to on the phone, but nobody there physically with me. And I cannot tell you how many times I just sat on my bed that summer, that, those two, that week and a half, and said, no matter what, Jesus. My heart was aching for her. I knew what her family was going through, not only in the passing of her grandfather, but also the splitting up of her parents and everything else that she was going through. We weren't even sure if she was going to come back after that. But I remember sitting on that bed, no matter what, Jesus. And finally, that summer, the, one of the last weeks, things started to get better after that third week, but one of the last weeks, uh, the two people on my team that I said were struggling a little bit more, they decided to get into a screaming match in front of a bunch of campers uh, and start to have a very visible conflict with one another throughout the entire week to where it was a lot of kind of catty, sassy attitude toward one another. And I remember the dean of that week saying, do they always act like this? Not always, not always this bad. But I remember in that situation, every time, every morning, every night, thinking to myself, praying, no matter what, Jesus. When I got done with that last week, we all sat down together, and I tried to do a little bit of conflict resolution, and I remember vis- you know, verbally saying out loud. To this point, I hadn't really verbally said it out loud. I more said it silently during prayers and in my own mind. But I verbally said out loud, guys, no matter what, Jesus. And they all kind of stopped. Yeah. Now, of course, camp teams was over at this time. We were all done, but I said, yeah, no matter what. Jesus, and the entire situation, him. And I wouldn't say things were perfect after that, but things got a whole lot better. This mentality of no matter what, Jesus was with our team the rest of the time as we were ending and kind of finishing things up. And I thought to myself, if I would just have allowed that focus to be with them, and not just myself, but also with them, that I wouldn't just be heightening my worship to God by focusing on him, but helping the people around me to heighten their worship and focus on Jesus. Things could have turned out a whole lot better. Because I knew what that did in my own heart. I knew what that did in my own prayers. I would have loved to see what that could have done for them. But the moral of it all is that no matter what what situation we have, have an attitude in your life of no matter what, Jesus. No matter what financial strain comes on your family, Jesus. Jesus. No matter what happens at your work, because you don't know if you can do that job anymore, or you don't know if they're going to keep you on that job because the budget is being cut, Jesus. No matter what happens with your family, if you're not sure if you're going to talk to somebody anymore or things are not working out, no matter what, Jesus. In every situation of your life, have an attitude of no matter what, Jesus.
And the final H that I'll leave you with today is humble worship. This is a pretty bold statement, but I, I have never seen any evidence in my life to not back this statement up, which is proud people can't worship God because they're too busy worshiping themselves. Proud people are physically and, and, and emotionally, mentally, however you, spiritually unable to worship God because they're too proud worshiping themselves. It does not work. It does not work. And that's why we have to have our worship be honest. One of the main reasons why and truthful about worshiping God and for who he actually is. Because if we ever try to encompass ourselves in worship, it's never going to be true. It's never going to be right. It's never going to actually work out. Our worship has to remain humble. Verse 48, Mary shows that. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. A lot of times when we read about Mary, we read about how, you know, she was a little scared, a little frightened because of everything that had happened. I mean, the, the, the text says she was frightened when the angel visited her. And so we think, you know, she probably had some stress or some worry going on. But something that came to my mind when I was reading through this is, what if Mary... And I'm not saying she didn't experience those things because the text said she did, but a temptation that Mary could have had could have been pride. Oh, God trusts me. He didn't trust the other girls on my street. He didn't trust any of those other people. He trusted, he trusted me to carry and deliver the Messiah, the Savior of this world. I'm the one who he trusted. I'm not afraid because I know, I know the scripture. I've done the right things. I, I can do it all. She, she could have not been humble, but she was. She considered herself servant. Not a co-worker, not the head one in charge with God or anything like that, but just simply as his servant. She would be the one to carry and deliver. Not because of how good she was, not because of how excellent she, she thought she was or anything like that, but simply because she wanted to humbly worship God. I don't use the message translation for everything. I think it has a lot of good portions of it, but I think the message translation puts these uh, three verses very well about kind of how Mary was feeling. And Mary said, I'm bursting with good news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. God took one good look at me and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. Not, I deserve this because I'm better than other women on earth. Not, oh, this, this makes sense to me because of all the scripture I know. Just, I am the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose very name is holy, set apart from all others. One of the most important things to do in our worship is to recognize that it's never ourselves, it's never our own efforts, it's never who we are or what we've done, it's never what we've accomplished ourselves that saves us, but it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is only through the grace of, of, of sending Jesus for us that we are even able to worship God, that we even have the ability to sing and God for even to be willing to hear us is because of his grace. 
we recognize that Jesus is our only path. He is the only one who can deliver us to Jesus. Just like we said, it's not Mary. It's not yourself. It's not this church. It's nothing like that. It's Jesus. Now, this verse gets used a lot, but John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through you. That's not what he says. No one comes to the Father except what you've done. That's not what it says. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that we are forgiven, that we are blessed, that we have what we have, that we have the opportunity to leave this life and live an eternal life with God forever in heaven. So what difference does Christmas make? We are to worship God. We are to worship God on Sunday mornings. We are to worship God on our Sunday Mexican meal after church. We are to worship God during our work lives. We are to worship God when we decide to play sports. We are to worship God with our family. We are to worship God. When we receive the confirmation of who Jesus is and that he really did come to this earth, just like Mary received the confirmations that she would carry and deliver the Messiah, we are to worship God. We are to be humble. We are to heighten our worship on God. And we are to be honest with who he is. Not lord over the minds that come into our, or the the thoughts that come into our mind. But to be honest about the truth of who Jesus is. If you have a decision you'd like to make this morning and you think, oh, I need to to proclaim this worship to God, then, then we'd love to make that happen for you. If you're just wondering about that and want to talk more, we'd love to make that happen for you as well. If you're somebody who just needs prayer, you're saying this Christmas time is going to be a little difficult. I need to have, have some honest conversation. I need some prayer, whatever it is. We invite you to come forward. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. Whatever it is you might need. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for just Jesus and this Christmas time, Lord, that even though there's physical changes that will happen and mental changes and emotional changes that will go on, Lord, that most of all, you even allow us to be changed spiritually. You even allow us to worship you. Lord, I pray that as we sing this song and as we leave here today, Lord, that we would remember the example of Mary's worship for us. The example to be humble, to heighten our focus on you, to do all of those things. Lord, to be honest and truthful about who you are. Lord, in our singing, in our lifestyle, in our communication, in all that we do. Lord, we love you and thank you. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.